Hello, everybody. I am very excited to say welcome to season three of Navigating Law School Admissions with Miriam and Christy. Christy, we've been talking about whether there should be a season three for months now, and you have finally managed to talk me into it. I sure did. I knew we had one final season in us. There were just a few more topics that we both felt were worth covering. You definitely had to twist my art just a little bit, but I am very (laughs) glad you did. And today's topic is one I am really excited about. What should applicants do right at the very beginning of the application process? And how can they research schools and put together their list of schools they will be applying to most effectively? Get ready for it. This episode is going to be a total law school admissions nerd fest. Lots of acronyms and a deep dive into some key reports. But it wouldn't be an episode of navigating law school admissions unless we started with the game. I thought it would be fun if we use this game to talk a bit about some of our favorite and funniest moments from the past cycle. So let's play a few rounds of the old favorite, Two Truths and a Lie. That is one of my very favorite games that we've played, so I'm (laughs) glad we're going back to it. Okay, I am going to start. I read some absolutely over-the-top things in applications this past year. Two of these are true, and one is not. So the first one is... A diversity statement based on how ugly the person was. Number two is a personal statement written about a trip to the supermarket with detailed descriptions of absolutely everything the person purchased. And finally, a 250-word essay that discussed how absolutely terrible Yale Law School is. Okay, I know it's not number one because I am certain that I read that same diversity statement myself. I'm going to guess the supermarket. You think that's the lie? I think that's the lie. That is, in fact, correct. Although it's a little crazy that it's true that someone wrote a 250-word essay about how terrible Yale Law School is. Note to applicants, don't do that. It is not effective or cute. You know, I bet it's not the first time someone's done that. I bet they think it's going to be kind of contrarian. Yeah, I have a vague recollection of someone doing that at least once before, and I don't think it was effective that time either. So (laughs) this is a good tip. I try not to be very directive in my application advice, but note to applicants, don't trash the law school you're applying to as part of your application materials. Yes, the prompt is not, why not Yale? Exactly. Yes, that's, don't read it that way, everyone. Good advice, Christy. All right, your turn. All right, my turn. Okay. As they say on the internet, Miriam, where is the lie? A, an addendum that began. Wait, before you discard my application, let me explain. B, a personal statement about the applicant's waxing regime. C, a personal statement about Bob the Builder. I have a strong feeling that the lie is the waxing regime. Is that right? You're right. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) The other two felt very true to me. Like the first one felt, again, like a little cute intro that someone thought would grab attention. And in fact, it it, did. It did grab grab my attention. And then Bob the Builder, I don't know, maybe I read that one because something in there felt very true to me. I mean, a waxing regime is really out there. And I would say no good under basically any and all circumstances. So anyone with a small child who's watched Bob the Builder will know that the theme song go, goes sort of, can we fix it? Yes, we can. Uh-huh. And that was, the, that was the motivation for the Bob the Builder essay. Somehow my children all missed Bob the Builder. We watched many, many 
TV shows like Dora the Explorer, all of those. But Bob the Builder was never one for any any of my three children. Okay, let's do one more round and you can go first this time. Let's do some of our funnest facts from this year's incoming classes. Uh, it's the best time of year when we start putting together the fun facts. Okay, two truths and a lie, Miriam. A, a professional lighting designer and master electrician for Shakespeare in the Park. B, an arborist with a decade plus of experience. C, a former NBA player. I feel like you like this. You like the sports folks. I, I think that one's true. I'm going to give you your NBA player, although I don't remember an NBA player in the applicant pool, but maybe they didn't apply to Yale. I'm sad they didn't. NBA players apply to Yale. And, <laughs> and I'm going to give you your professional lighting designer. So I'm saying the arborist is the lie, but I'm not sure. That was really kind of a guess. Oh, you got it. Was I right You're two again? for two. <laughs> you were right again. It took me till season three to get good at these games. And then we're going to end, end the podcast. I don't know. Maybe we have to have season four just so I can keep winning games. Okay. <laughs> it's my turn. Two true, one not. All right. Submarine captain, crossword constructor for the New York Times, and white hat hacker. I am pretty sure that the crossword constructor is true. I have a memory of someone who had crossword experience. Submarine captain seems like true as well. So I'm going to go with C, the white hack hacker. Wrong. I have a white <laughs> hack hacker and I love her. She's amazing. She's so cool. And she's a that she, is cool. which is even better. Um, I've, I have had multiple submarine captains in my classes, but not this year. I tricked Ooh, you tricky, because I, in, I intentionally picked one from a prior class. And that's actually what I do when my dean does her. She does a two truths or multiple truths and a lie in her convocation speech. And so the lie is always someone from a prior class so that it seems realistic. So that's that's my trick for that one, too, when I'm trying got to me. find a guy. I got you. I finally got you. I rarely get you in the games. OK, in all seriousness, let's spend just a few minutes recapping this past admission cycle. So what was this like for you, Christy, this last? year. So honestly, if it had not been for the 2020-2021 cycle, which will live in infamy forever. Forever in infamy. <laughs> <laughs> if it wasn't for that year, this past cycle would have probably felt very intense. App volume was high, much higher than before the pandemic. But the number of applications was down significantly from the historic year prior. So it actually kind of felt like a relief, relatively speaking. How about you? Basically the same. Uh, 2020, 2021 was so crazy in terms of application volume that this past year felt reasonable, but really only by comparison. Everything was down just one notch in intensity. And so it felt much more manageable. I also noticed uh, a larger than usual number of reapplicants. We actually spoke about that, I think, pretty early on in the cycle. And those came pretty early. And yep. those high LSAT scores really just kept on coming. Those were two things that I picked up on pretty early. And though, even though the applicant pool wasn't as large as the prior year, it was still really sizable and really strong. So it was a very competitive year again. We also had a fair number of incoming deferred students within the range of normal, but on the higher side of normal. So that also added to the competitiveness, uh, at least at YLS. Agreed on all of those observations. I do think admissions offices and, and hopefully applicants were more prepared for the intensity of this cycle than they were the prior year. Did you change anything in your process this year after the 2020-2021 huge increase in volume? 
Not in any major way. We were really mindful at the beginning of the cycle of the need to get a very, very good handle on application volume so that we could really titrate the number of files sent on to faculty accordingly so that we didn't overly burden them with too many files each. Because once we set the bar for going on to faculty review, we really keep it as consistent as possible throughout the application cycle. So it's really important to set it in the right place right at the beginning. But that wouldn't necessarily have any kind of effect that applicants would have noticed. It was just something that we internally were really mindful of at the beginning of the cycle. So as for HLS, I'm going to preface this by saying this is all going to be a bit in the weeds. So listeners, feel free to press that fast forward 30 seconds button. So the historic prior cycle reinforced the value for us of just really getting your head around the pool before you start making decisions or even putting files on the path to decisions. So to that end, my team focused our energy on moving through first reads in the opening weeks of the cycle, which, as you noted, were just dominated by reapplicants. And then we waited to begin second reads until we felt like we'd seen enough files to have a strong sense of the pool. You would have thought we'd feel the urge to jump right into the second reads just to kind of like keep the trains running. But we aimed for quality and understanding of the whole landscape rather than just churning through work as quickly as we could. Yeah, the one other thing that was really notable to me about this past year, and this isn't related to application reading, is that it felt like a real transition back to a mix of in-person events rather than just remote ones. Uh, And that was a real change from the last few years. Oh, absolutely. So both of our offices had limited in-person recruiting and modest in-person events for admitted students, but it was just a real range in terms of what the law schools were doing for both recruitment and for admitted student programming. Right. And I think that this coming year, we're all planning on being back on the road and back to our larger in-person admitted student events. Although after COVID, I have thrown my crystal ball in the trash, so no one really knows for sure. But at least that's what we're planning this time around, I think. And that actually makes me think of a question for you, Christy. Uh, What do you think you've learned from COVID, which has dominated our time in our jobs, actually? Yes. Is there anything that you've tried that you will definitely keep or or the reverse, things you hope never to do again? Um, I'm definitely not going to keep multi-hour committee meetings on Zoom. No, thank you. Um, This is a small thing, but work with me here because this really was a lesson learned. Once upon a time, we used to give a welcome gift to admitted students at our admitted students weekends. So usually think like a tote bag and a water bottle. Well, we only had one of those ASWs in spring 2020 for the class of 2023. Fast forward to fall 2021, the folks who would have come to an ASW that spring are now rising two L's. And once our campus opened back up, our office spent two weeks chasing down two L's to hand out their water bottles and tote bags oh that had been just <laughs> sitting upstairs in spring 2020. It's like literally hundreds of tote bags. And we water set bottles. up a table and had them come and grab them from us. Like we had, it was we wild. did that too. Yeah, it was crazy. I felt like I was running a gift shop. Yeah, that's what it was like. I, I know. <laughs> And then obviously during the COVID year, 2020-2021, we bailed our admit gifts to admit students since there was no in-person ASW to hand hand it out. And that led to this larger realization, why had we ever, ever had a system in which admitted students with the time and resources to visit campus got a gift while those who skipped ASWs for any reason didn't get one? So we decided from here on out just to mail every single admitted student, every single gift. So just put everyone in the same position when it comes to gifts. They all get the same thing at the same time. No one has to wait to come to campus that fall to get their tote bag. How about you? 
So I'm I'm an optimist by nature, at least I try to be. So I'm always trying to look for the silver linings in things. And I think for us, my big takeaway from COVID is that we really experimented with a ton of different kinds of online events. So we used to do a pretty standard like online open house with like a generic, you know, I think helpful, but pretty basic um, presentation about, you know, all things admissions. And we definitely tried a whole bunch of different kinds of events online, uh, drop in office hours with students and with staff members, um, different topical presentations. And some things worked and some things did not work. And we have all sorts of uh, fun data reports on what worked and what didn't. And I think, you know, going forward, we're really going to keep some of the the things we tried that worked really well and that applicants seem to really enjoy. We did similar sorts of experimental events with our uh, admitted students, too. And I think it really forced us to be much more creative than we had been. And that was a good thing. And one of my takeaways from from the last few years. Oh, absolutely. Those virtual, the virtual events for admitted students in particular, I felt like I was so much more open to trying something, even if it was a flop, just to see. How would you know if you don't see? Right. If you, if you, I would say to my team all the time, like, let's just try it. If it sucks, we will never do this again. Let's turn now to our main topic for today. For all of those new law school applicants out there, what should you do right at the beginning? Some of what we say may seem like old hat to you law school admissions veterans, but everyone was a beginner once. One of the very first things any potential law school applicant has to do is sign up for an account with LSAC or the Law School Admission Council. Note to all of you out there, we are about to mention a metric ton of confusing acronyms. <laughs> so get ready. We apologize in advance and we're going to try to be as clear as possible, but we may not succeed. This feels like a little bit like preparing for an administrative law class with all these overlapping acronyms. But if you go to lsac.org slash about, you will find a lot more details and reference. So LSAC, Law School so wait, Admission wait, Council. You call it LSAC? I always call it LSAC. Are we going to really? have our first fight? Our first podcast fight? <laughs> like, we're just going to have to do like a thumb war? Is it like LSAC or LSAC? I don't, I've never, I didn't know. Is it like tomato? To is it like tomato, tomato? I feel like LSAC is tomato. I'm sorry. All right. I'll go with tomato. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You can call right, it your way. I'm not, I'm not going to force my views upon you. That would be wrong. <laughs> so LSAC or LSAC. <laughs> Is the Law School Admission Council, and yes, it's admission singular. It's a nonprofit organization that does a number of things, including administering the LSAT. Oh, that's why you say LSAC for parallel with LSAT. Yeah, it huh. just rolls off the tongue. Maybe you're right and I'm wrong. <laughs> I acknowledge maybe it. I acknowledge my error, Christy. We could, we could do like a listener poll. Yeah, we should maybe do a listener poll. Also, I won the game today, so I'm feeling very uh, generous. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, go back, go back. So in addition to the LSAT, the test, LSAC also centralizes the law school application process through the Credential Assembly Service, also known as CAS. Okay, so in addition to the LSAT, the test, and CAS, the Credential Assembly Service, LSAC, the organization, also provides a number of other services that I want to mention. And this is just a few of the things that they do. So they give uh, free LSAT preparation through Khan Academy. They have the opportunity to meet with law school representatives at law school forums. So these are large conferences that law school admissions offices and 
applicants can attend. These are either at various cities across the U.S. and Canada and virtually. The virtual ones are new since COVID and are continuing. And there's also something called CRS or the Candidate Referral Service, which allows applicants to opt in to being recruited by law schools. Once you sign up for your LSAC account, you are going to have to make a few choices, one of which is whether to opt into CRS. This is probably a good moment to give our two cents on this topic. So here's some advantages of opting into the Candidate Referral Service, or CRS. You'll start to receive a slew of emails from law schools providing you with information about their schools. Some of these emails could be useful both when you're deciding where to apply and when you're writing a personal statement for schools that like to see a sort of YX school. Just note, remember, neither Harvard nor Yale likes to see a YX, but many schools do like to see that as part of the application. And also note that no schools like to see a why not X exactly. for their school. <laughs> no why not X. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> All right. So back to CRS. You're also going to receive invitations to recruiting events from different schools, some of which may not be available to the general public or may not be posted on a school's website. So that could be useful. Schools may also reach out to you by email and provide resources to strengthen your application. For example, sending you sample application materials or sharing more information about their schools by connecting you with current students or alumni. Finally, and very importantly for applicants, some schools will provide fee waivers via email to those who have opted into CRS. Okay, so all of that may sound amazing, and you're thinking, what could possibly be the disadvantage to CRS? So the main one is the spam factor. I'm sure it is absolutely exhausting to receive constant emails and texts from Dartmouth Law School reminding you that you are a desirable candidate when you have absolutely no interest in applying there. And no one has an interest in applying to Dartmouth Law School because it doesn't exist. But that seems like a small price to pay for the benefits of opting in. And I would recommend that the way to limit that annoyance factor is to set up a law school specific email account that you use for your LSAC account or LSAC account only so that you don't clog up your personal email inbox and that will make it much easier to manage all of those emails from law schools. Yes, that is such a good idea. You can make it, you know, christy.lawschoolapplications at gmail.com and just have everything sent to there. So one final point about these emails, don't put too much weight on them, either because you got an email from a particular school or because you didn't get an email from a particular school. Receiving these emails doesn't mean you have an increased chance of admission. It only means that you met some specific search criteria a school was using when they ran off that email. Right. No one is trying to trick you into applying by sending you an email. We are doing the best we can with the fairly limited data that we get from the CRS database. Similarly, not receiving an email doesn't mean that we don't want you to apply. It just means that we fell outside our fairly constrained search criteria, which we set in order to avoid spamming too many people with that exact email. In sum, these are all just big queries and data drops. It ain't personal, kids, one way or another. And there's no point in treating these emails like tea leaves for your future chances at a school. In addition to deciding whether to opt into CRS, you will also have to decide whether to apply for an LSAC fee waiver. These fee waivers are based on the applicant and their family's income and assets, and they will cover many of the fees charged by the law school admission council. 
The fees charged by LSAC for the LSAT and the Credential Assembly Services are pretty substantial. The LSAT itself costs $215 each time you take it. The Credential Assembly Service costs $195. That's a one-time fee for, for the CAS fee. This fee covers verifying and summarizing all transcripts, creating your law school CAS report, which we'll talk about more later, processing your letters of recommendation, and processing your applications for each law school. There is also a $45 fee for every time you send that CAS report to a law school. And note that that is a fee that is uh, charged by LSAC, not the individual school. Finally, there are also a few fees that some applicants pay if, for example, they change their LSAT testing date or they opt for score preview, which allows you to see your score in advance of it being released under some circumstances. Obviously, this all adds up really quickly, and it can be a very significant amount for, for applicants, especially for those who come from less advantaged backgrounds. Given all these fees, it's wise to carefully look at the criteria for the LSAC fee waiver system and apply if you think there's a chance you might qualify. LSAC recently expanded its fee waiver program to include both a Tier 1 and a Tier 2 in order to ensure that more applicants receive fee waivers. The primary difference between those two tiers is that anyone approved for a Tier 1 fee waiver receives two free LSAT tests and six free law school reports, and anyone approved for a Tier 2 fee waiver receives one free LSAT and three free law school reports. Both groups receive a number of other benefits, including free CAS registration and score preview. So in addition to all those fees we just covered that are charged by LSAC, Law schools generally also charge an application fee, which is paid to the law school at the time of applying. This is another cost that can really quickly add up. Fortunately, many law schools have fee waiver processes that provide opportunities to have their own law school application fees waived. Less fortunately, each school seems to really have its own process, which means it can be, you know, an amount of time to minimize the fees you pay. Yeah, that's right. But this effort is really worth it since it can reduce your cost by many hundreds of dollars. You should check each school's website for information about how they handle fee waivers. It's really easy. Just Google Yale Law School fee waiver, Harvard Law School fee waiver. And if you don't see information on the website, then you should email the main admissions office email address. I'm sure Christy sees this too. The many, many, many dozens, hundreds of emails you get saying, hey, how can I get a fee waiver? And the answer is... There's a fee waiver form on our website. Fill it in. Right there. So do that first. Yep. Those are those emails where you're like, ah, sigh. <laughs> you could have, could have handled that one on your own. So in broad terms, there are a number of common ways that schools provide fee waivers. So the first one and the one that is, is closest to, to, I think, both of our hearts is need. And this is the only reason that both of our schools will provide a fee waiver. At YLS, we will waive the fee for anyone with need based on a very, very simple form that can be found on our website. We will also automatically waive our fee for anyone who has an L. LSAC fee waiver, since that's another indicia that the applicant has need. We do so very generously. Uh, we don't even ask for information about your parents' income or assets. Um, and other schools will similarly grant need-based fee waivers, but may require more documentation or have more stringent criteria than we do. At a certain point, uh, a, about a year or two ago, I decided that I would rather um, err on the side of overgranting rather than undergranting fee waivers as a matter of policy. So that's fee waivers based on need. 
There's also fee waivers based on, and I'm putting kind of air quotes here, merit. I'm using that term very loosely because it's merit defined and very, uh, very fuzzy ways. Very fuzzy, loose terms. Exactly. But suffice to say, many schools will send out fee waivers to those with certain numeric or demographic characteristics based on searches that the schools run in the CRS database. This is a major reason why it may make sense for you as an applicant to opt into CRS. And some schools have lists of certain categories of applicants they will grant fee waivers to, usually those they believe have a mix of merit and need. For example, Teach for America participants, military veterans and service members. Peace Corps and AmeriCorps participants. Often schools will put on their website that anyone participating in a program of this type simply gets a fee waiver automatically. So the final way you can get a fee waiver at certain schools is by demonstrating interest in that school. So for example, some schools will give you a fee waiver if you attend a certain event or will hand them out at things like the LSAC forum or certain school-specific recruiting events. So that's something to keep in mind that if you are going to events uh, to make sure that, you know, you snag those fee waivers if it's a school that does so. Uh, it's also important to remember that with very, very few exceptions, law schools cannot waive the $45 fee charged by LSAC to submit your CAS report to the school. That fee, again, is charged by LSAC, not the law schools. So only LSAC has the ability to waive it. So even if you do get a law school fee waiver, it generally will cover the law school's fee and not the LSAC CAS report fee. But there are a very small handful of schools that will cover the $45 CAS report fee and pay LSAC for you. It can't hurt to ask for that if the information isn't clear from the school's website, but that is an exception and a fairly limited one in my experience. One final note, don't pay a law school application fee and then ask for a fee waiver or a refund. It is logistically nearly impossible for us to refund a fee, even if you would have been eligible for a fee waiver. Once you've paid a fee, it's done. We cannot reimburse you. This is a deep sigh when I see these emails come through, and it happens every year, you know, more than a handful of times. I always feel really terribly because I wish the person had just submitted the form. We process them really usually within one business day, and then we get the email after the fact, and it's just absolutely impossible logistically to refund those fees. We say so explicitly in our application instructions. So we are saying this to forewarn all of you, get the fee waivers first and then apply. Uh, they last for a long time. You can do so right at the beginning of the cycle. Even if you're applying in many months, do it ahead of time, get that work done and save yourself some money. All right. Can I end on a pet peeve, Christy? Of course, you know, I love a pet peeve. I know you love a pet peeve. <laughs> okay. On Reddit, my very favorite place to torture myself, you sometimes see applicants say that schools are just granting fee waivers to increase their selectivity by encouraging applicants who really have no chance. I don't want to speak for all schools, but this seems like the height of lunacy to me. Why would you want to encourage applicants who have no chance? Who are you helping? Why would you want to read the application of someone who isn't viable at all? These kinds of evil conspiracy theories are really, really silly. Okay, now it's my turn to rant. I love a rant. <laughs> so the flip side of this is what is when applicants say we're encouraging applications through those, you know, mailings and everything for another reason, just to get the revenue from their application fees. Can I just say that at least at Harvard Law School, we in the admissions office see exactly zero dollars of application fee revenue in our budget. 
So I am not incentivized to do this in the least. No one on my team, including me, gets a bonus or slush fund no matter how much money we pull via application fees. Oh my gosh, totally same. I've joked with my CFO before. I'm like, well, maybe if you gave me all my application fees, I would stop giving out so many fee waivers. And he just LOLs. This one literally always makes me laugh. So no, we are not sending you mailings in order to get your application fees, period, full stop. Let's talk about the ABA 509 reports. The ABA 509 report is helpful to applicants, not application reviewers. In my opinion, it is probably the key data source applicants can use to gather information about law schools when deciding where to apply. Christy, I'm starting to get the feeling that this may not be our most scintillating podcast episode of all time. What with all these acronyms and now all these reports, it feels like a snooze fest. Uh, Miriam, what could be more scintillating than an ABA 509 report? I think we're just giant admissions nerds <laughs> at this point. It's a little it's a little bit sad, I'm not going to lie, because I find this all really fun and exciting, but I'm afraid no one else will. <laughs> I guess we'll have to see. Only only the listener, the listener hits will tell. <laughs> all right. Well, we're we're in it now so we can't go back. So, what is this mysterious ABA 509 report? I guess the the threshold question is, what is ABA 509? So ABA stands for the American Bar Association, which is the entity that accredits law schools. And standard 509 refers to one in a number of standards that uh, law schools have to meet in order to be accredited. So standard 509 requires all law schools to disclose certain information on their websites in a standard way as a form of consumer disclosures. You can find each law school's ABA 509 reports just by Googling the school's name and, shocker, ABA 509 report. You can also go to the ABA website itself and find them all in one place. It's at ABARequiredDisclosures.org forward slash disclosures 509. The ABA actually requires three sets of disclosures. A series of information about the law school that includes certain curricular information, admission statistics, information on the faculty, tuition, fees, demographic information, scholarship information, attrition rates, and information on transfers. This report is not very compellingly called the 509 Required Disclosures. You can always count on lawyers to give things the most boring and unhelpful names of all time. The other two reports are focused on employment outcomes and bar passage outcomes. All right. So what are some of the key pieces of information you would be looking for if you were a law school applicant? based on these three reports. And by the way, these reports didn't certainly didn't exist when I was applying to law school. I don't know about when you were applying. You're so much younger than me. <laughs> I'm such a baby. Um, candidly, you don't I even know. don't remember. Yeah, don't you don't know. even know. Yeah. I mean, I, I was still doing applications on paper, so there was definitely no ABA 509 reports back in my day. So back in 2007, 2008, when I applied to law school, I bet the, even if the reports existed, they certainly were not just readily available yeah. on the internet. I'm sure you had to find them somehow or order them. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, this has been, a, I think, a really good innovation by the ABA because I think it does provide a way to compare apples to apples. Uh, law schools will all report data differently on their websites. Think, even basic things like yield, there's multiple ways to calculate. And so this is something where you can really see law schools presenting information side by side in exactly the same way. So in that sense, I think it is very helpful. 
All right. Sorry. So back to my, my predicate question, which is what, what is actually helpful from these reports? So what would you be looking at, Christy? All right. So here's a few things I would look at if I was in an applicant's shoes. What percentage of the faculty is full-time versus part-time or adjunct? What is the ratio of faculty members to students? What's the total cost of attendance and what is the cost of living? And does that cost of living seem realistic? Because remember, you can only get loans up to the school's estimated cost of living, sometimes called COL. Right. So if it's a really high cost of living city and that cost of living seems really low, you have to know you're not going to be able to get loans beyond that amount. And that could be be a problem for you. I'll, I'll just pause on this to say sometimes uh, people call this the sticker price. And in almost every setting, a lower sticker price is better, right? You're right. like, oh, I'd love to pay less. I'll frame it slightly differently. When I first started, I worked very closely with uh, a group of students to have our cost of living adjusted upward because they felt that our cost of living was not realistic. It was not meeting their needs to live in New Haven. And therefore, they couldn't borrow the appropriate amount to meet their daily living expenses. And so we went through a process of adjusting it upwards to more realistically reflect their daily living expenses. And so it was really important for their cost of living to be a realistic amount. Absolutely. So that's one thing I would look at and dig into a little bit further and not just let your eyes fixate on and not just assume that lower is better in all circumstances. Correct. Mm -hmm. Correct. So circling back to the 509 report, I would look at the demographics of the student body. Is it diverse? Is the faculty diverse? What is the attrition rate at the law school? I would be I would personally be concerned if the attrition rate was relatively high. I would also look at whether the school offered conditional scholarships. And for me personally, I would find it concerning if the school offered a lot of conditional scholarships. And maybe just explain, I think most people know what a conditional scholarship is, Christy, but maybe just say what that is. Sure. So for some schools, they will give you a scholarship and that scholarship is, call it guaranteed, as provided you remain at the school in good standing, then you get the scholarship. Other schools will condition the receipt of your scholarship on your performance, typically your grades and how you um, fare grade-wise compared to your classmates. That can put a lot of pressure on an individual and feel very stressful um, because your financial circumstances are so closely tied to your classroom performance and there's plenty of stress on your classroom performance in the first place. So again, this is a personal decision, but for me, I would find it concerning to see a lot of conditional scholarships. Right. And then the question is, what are those conditions? And, you know, are they just really like low basic conditions or are they, uh, how close are they to the um, median GPA that, or to the curve of the school? And that's something that you would want to dig into a little bit and see how comfortable you are with that. So I agree with everything Christy said. And then of course, the employment outcomes and bar passage rate reports are very critical too. I would want to make sure that the law school was really worth the investment. Law school is expensive. And that I was confident that I had a very strong chance of both passing the bar and getting a job that required a JD or at least was a JD advantage job, which is information you can get from those reports. So all of these reports have some incredibly useful information, but these reports also have their quirks and they can be a little bit hard to parse. And I'm just going to give a few examples of these quirks so that people are aware of taking them with a grain of salt. Um, my knowledge of the quirks is, is most focused on the admission stats because that's where Christy and I live. So I'm sure that there are, or there are 
potentially are quirks in other parts of the reports, but I'm most familiar with the admissions data. So on the very first page of the 509 report, there's a section that describes the first year class, which is really a section on admission statistics. If you're paying careful attention, you'll notice a line that says, other first year enrollees. What does that mean? Who are these magical, mysterious other first year enrollees? This is referring to the number of students who are entering after deferring out for one or more years. Interestingly, anyone who accepts an offer of admission and then decides to defer is not considered enrolled. So schools with a large number of outgoing deferrals will have an artificially low yield on the ABA 509 reports because none of those students are considered yielded for the purposes of the report. And we'll sometimes get questions about why the yield on our website is so different from what's on the ABA 509 report. And that's why loads and loads of deferrals and it causes a major differential between our reported yield and the yield on the ABA report. So just another example of something I've always found challenging is the way these reports uh, capture demographic data. So demographic data for the student body is generally found on page two. Every student in all three years of the JD program is counted once and only once, and all multiracial students are categorized as two or more races. This is often a substantial number of students. Uh, if you follow demographic data in the U.S., we would expect this to be a growing number of students. And this umbrella category can make it really hard to get a good handle on the demographics of the overall student body. To add to that, all non-U.S. citizen students are very awkwardly categorized as non-resident aliens and given no race or ethnicity at all. So if you're at a school like HLS, which enrolls a significant percentage of international students from a whole variety of racial and ethnic backgrounds, they just aren't captured at all in the total minority number that's listed on the ABA 509 report. That makes of course, me crazy. I don't understand why non-citizen students are captured in this way and considered to be without a race or ethnicity. It actually feels very odd. And has always felt very odd to me. Very odd. Yeah. Um, And of course, there's just also just to say the obvious, these categories do not capture the lived experience of many or even all of our students. There's, for example, no category for Middle Eastern North African identifying students. And since each student is only counted once, there's a strange hierarchy of identity in the way the ABA counts each student. So, for example, a student who identifies as Hispanic and checks sort of, yes, Hispanic, is always counted in the Hispanic number and nowhere else, even though that student might personally identify as, say, Afro-Latina and Black. For those reasons, I really advise reaching out to affinity groups at schools to get a sense of the experience of various communities at law schools, rather than limiting yourself to the ABA 509 report demographic data. I agree with this 100%. I've seen um, some Reddit posts about this, where people make very strong statements about what the community, uh, certain groups of students are like at at various schools that I know just are not true. Um, and it's based on um, a misreading of this ABA 509 data, which is presented in a very specific way that is just, you know, this data is really complicated data. There's no perfect way to present it. And certainly the way the ABA 509 report presented can be really confusing and hard to parse. And so it's good to know that that's probably true of many other parts of the data on this report. But Christine and I live in the weeds of this part of the data. And so we know in particular the ways in which this is confusing and complicated. All right. So let's talk briefly about how applicants can think about putting together a list of schools to apply to. Let's start by talking about where you shouldn't apply. Basic tip, if you have no interest in attending a law school, 
don't apply there. Don't it's apply really, there. <laughs> just it's really don't. not a good use of your time or the school's time, not to mention all those fees we discussed earlier. And there can be a lot of valid reasons why a school isn't a good fit, no matter how wonderful that school is. You may want to live in a big city and that school is not in a big city. You may want to stay in a particular region of the country or need to be near family or hate the cold or have a particular subject area you're interested in that the school just doesn't teach or focus on. You should make a list of your must-haves and your deal breakers. And if a school doesn't have something you need or has something you can't tolerate, just don't apply there. The next step is to think a little bit about geography vis-a-vis career goals. Some law schools have national reach and are able to place their graduates in markets all across the country. Other schools have a regional presence and are much better at placing their graduates within the state where they're located or within the region where they're located. As frequent listeners will know, I am definitely not the biggest fan of the law school rankings, but it is certainly the case that schools that rank more highly are those that have more of a national reach in general. You want to be very careful about attending a school in a place you don't want to live in the long term if it is a school that generally limits its graduates to the state or region in which it's located. Or conversely, if you know you want to work in a particular market and a regional school or a couple regional schools really dominate that market, maybe it's actually a better choice for you to attend one of those schools than a national school that's ranked much higher. Another key step is to think about what schools you can realistically get into. This is probably the most common request on Reddit. Chance me. So there's a couple of websites that can be helpful in giving you a very rough sense about your chances at various schools. Two of these are Seven Sage, which has a law school predictor, as well as LS Data, which is based on self-reported application data. While both are perhaps helpful resources, neither one is perfect. And of course, another helpful resource for this is those ABA 509 reports, which set out the GPA and LSAT medians and quartiles for each school. But it's really, really important to remember that all of these reports and these tools are just starting points. There is so much more to the application than just those numbers. And if you're relying too much on those tools, you could end up applying to schools that are either out of reach because your numbers are the strongest part of your application, or you could self-select out of great schools that are totally in range because your numbers really understate the strength of your application. And the more uncommon your background and experiences, the less helpful these predictors are going to be. Finally, just a quick note on the number of schools you should apply to. This is really going to vary widely from applicant to applicant. Every year I hear from at least one or two of our admitted students that we are the only school they apply to, or perhaps one of only two to three that they apply to. I'm always shocked by this, but it happens really quite commonly. It's not that they're totally arrogant or assume that they're going to be admitted. That's never what's going on. It's always because we were their first choice or a handful of schools were their first choices, and they were equally happy taking a year off and reapplying more widely if they weren't accepted. So that's certainly an approach you can take. Apply narrowly to your very top but realistic choices, knowing that you have great options to work or do something else for a year with a plan to reapply if needed. Another approach, and probably the more common one, much more is common to, one, I would say, <laughs> yeah, is to just apply broadly in the first instance. In that case, your list should always include some schools that are reaches, some schools that are targets, and then some schools that you consider really safe bets. If you take this approach, you need to make sure that your list isn't so long that you aren't able to put the proper focus into each of those applications and spend and also so much money too. So Christy. much money, like it can get so expensive. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
So it's it's probably better to apply to a smaller number of schools well than a larger number of schools poorly. And another good thing about having a longer list with a really great range of schools is that you will hopefully receive a range of scholarship offers from those schools, which will give you a lot of great options at the end of the process and allow you to critically compare schools and figure out whether you go to a school that maybe you prefer a little bit, but with less money to a school that you think is also amazing, but that gave you an amazing scholarship offer. So that will give you a lot of choice and a lot of things to consider at the end. And then you can go visit and see how you feel once you're actually there. So that's our advice for beginning your application process. Begin at the very beginning, a very good place to start. (laughs) That's it for episode one of our final season. Hopefully those of you who are at the start of your law school application journeys have picked up on some good tips. At a minimum, hopefully you've learned a new acronym or two and chosen a preferred way to say LSAC or LSAC. As always, thank you for listening to Navigating Law School Admissions with Miriam and Christy. Stay tuned for our next episode on the review process, including CAS reports coming out in a few weeks. This podcast is produced by Ryan McAvoy from the Yale Broadcast Studio.